Okay, how's that? Good, good morning. Here we are. Hey, thanks for coming out on another cold and rainy Thursday. Has it rained every Thursday? Isn't that amazing? And yet, here you come. Thank you so much for being here this morning. And uh, I'm with Lynn. I'm just hoping that this means lots of beautiful wildflowers in the spring. I can hardly wait for that. Today we're looking um, and talking about the return of Jesus. When Jesus comes back, how does that make you feel? This was a question that you had in your small groups. I would have loved to have listened and see what everybody had to say. There were many uh, choices that I gave you there to pick for how you feel when you're talking about the end times. And I'll have to um, admit that over my lifetime, I have probably felt almost every one of those feelings at different times. As a little girl, I remember singing songs about heaven and Jesus coming. And some of you may remember those songs, songs like, Do Lord, oh do Lord, oh do remember me. I've got a home in glory land that outshines the sun way beyond the blue. And how about that song that um, said, For God so loved the world, he gave his only son to die on Calvary's tree from sin to set us free. Someday he's coming back. What glory that will be. Wonderful his love for me. And then there's I'll Fly Away and In the Sweet By and By. Those were the songs that I grew up singing um, as a little girl. So the reality of Jesus coming back was um, quite real for me. I had two godly grandmothers that loved the Lord. They knew the Word of God. They taught Bible studies in Sunday school. And they both thought Jesus would come back in their lifetime. They've gone on to be with him now. But um, they talked about that. And so it was a reality for me. Then I grew up and went on to high school. And um, I was pretty busy having a good time and uh, thinking Uh, about myself mainly, and I wasn't too focused on Jesus coming back. Then off to college, and I told you last week I came to TCU in Fort Worth, Texas, and here I met Scott, my true love, my husband-to-be, and when we were dating, he was very much into talking about Jesus coming back, because that's when Hal Lindsey had written The Late Great Planet Earth. I see Harriet. How many of you have read The Late Great Planet Earth? Yeah, it was a big book in the 70s, and um, Scott thought that I should read it and have an opinion on it. And uh, it it would be good if it was the same opinion he had. And how Lindsay talked a lot, you guys remember, he talked a lot about Revelation and the end times and how things were going on right then in the 70s that really um, predicted that Jesus was coming back. And many people thought Jesus would come back in the 80s, in the 1980s, that Jesus was coming back. So we talked a lot about it then. And in those days, I'll probably have to say that I was very motivated to study the Word, as well as getting irritated quite often with those that I felt like were obsessed with talking about the end times. Since those days, talk about the end times has waxed and waned. It was probably about, is it about 10 years ago, those Left Behind books came out. Do you remember by Tim LaHaye and I think Jenkins was the other author, talked about the rapture and the tribulation, and those were popular. And uh, even today, I know there's a movie out called The Book of Eli. I'm not sure exactly, but I think it has to do with, it's an apocalyptic movie about the end times, and I think Denzel Washington has the last Bible on earth or something. Anyway, there's always been talk. People have always been fascinated with thinking about the end times. In Jesus' day, when he talked about returning, 
the disciples were confused. They didn't understand that there would be a second coming. They knew from Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah was going to come. And the Old Testament talks about a suffering servant and a reigning king. But the disciples thought that Jesus would usher in that time of peace when Christ would be literally ruling on a throne, ruling the world, reigning literally. After his death and resurrection, they understood that Jesus was coming back again. Those in the first century thought that uh, Jesus was going to come soon. They believed his return would be soon. They were expecting him at any moment. And the Thessalonians were also expecting Jesus' return imminently. And with that expectation, questions began to come up. Questions that they probably sent back to Paul through Timothy. Now, you know, last week we talked about Timothy going um, to visit the Thessalonians and that he came back to Paul and he brought a report of how well they were doing. And he also probably brought back these questions that the Thessalonians had for him. And Paul's answer for them really makes this the major topic of this letter of encouragement, the topic of the return of Jesus. In the first three chapters, Paul is remembering the Thessalonians and what has happened to them in the past. He's commending them and encouraging them. And then in chapters 4 and 5, he encourages them through instruction. As believers today, how grateful we are for these verses in chapters 4 and 5. Because this is where we get much of our understanding of what will take place in the future when Jesus comes back for the believers. So let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to start today in verse 13. Now these verses, 13 through 18, this um, is the classic passage in the Bible on the rapture of the church. These are important verses to look at. Verses 13 and 14. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. It's come to Paul's attention, most likely through Timothy, that the Thessalonians are worried about those believers who are dying. And their question is, what is going to happen to them? It seems like they're going to miss out on this glorious time when Jesus comes back, because they're expecting it to happen any moment. And so Paul encourages them by saying, do not grieve with no hope. Do not grieve um, like the unbelievers with no hope. Because we have a hope. We have Jesus and the hope of eternal life and a glorious future with him. And we will be with our believing loved ones again. We will see them again. Be encouraged. Now let me say that doesn't mean that we don't grieve at all when someone dies. Of course we do. Of course we experience sadness at our loss. We're going to miss them. Um, Those that go on to heaven to be with the Lord, that's their gain. But we miss them, their presence here. But we have hope of a glorious future. Unlike the pagans, the unbelievers who have no hope. We have a favorite movie in our house. Um, It's The Man from Snowy River. How many of you um, know The Man from Snowy River? Yeah, it's a good movie. Some of you may remember in that kind of beginning scene when the um, star, um, he's a young guy, he buries his 
father, he dies, and there's the grave, and next to it is his mom, and he's standing there. And this old family friend um, is in a wagon right there by the graves, and this is played by um, Kirk Douglas. And uh, Jim, the, the young star, he looks up and he says, United in death, the minister said. And Kirk Douglas looks down from the wagon and he says, Superstition, those are words to comfort widows and fools. He was a man that had no understanding. He had no hope of a future eternity with Jesus. Verse 14 tells us that Jesus died and rose again. Jesus, um, just like these are facts that we know, not only from the Bible, but um, from other literature and writing as well, this happened. Jesus died and Jesus was resurrected. And Paul is saying, just like we know that happened, we can know that this will happen. Jesus is coming back for the believers. What a great assurance. Jesus is coming back. And he knows that because Jesus himself told the disciples that. And we read it in John on your verse sheet, John 14, 1 through 3. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. What a great assurance. Jesus is coming back. Now let me talk a second about that phrase, fallen asleep, that you read several times in chapter 4. It's a term that comes from the Greek word koimeo. And this word can describe normal sleep, but it became in the New Testament a familiar euphemism for the death of believers. Because death for the believer was no longer horrible. It was more like a peaceful sleep. Jesus took on our sin at the cross, and his death changed forever the death of the believer. Uh, Leon Morris, in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians, says it like this. Christ endured the full horror of that death that is the wages of sin, and thus transformed death for his followers into sleep. Now, it's important to remember that this sleep is only referring to the body. I don't want you to be confused about that. We're only talking about the body. Because our soul, our consciousness, our spirit goes on to be with Jesus when we die. Our spirit goes consciously into the presence of the Lord in heaven. While the unbelievers go into conscious punishment. And we know that. Paul talks about it a lot. He's always saying to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And one of those places in scripture is 2 Corinthians 5.8. And Paul says, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And Paul knows this because Jesus tells us this in Luke 23. Now this, let me tell you this before we read that verse. This is Jesus on the cross, and the two thieves were on either side of him, you may remember. And the one thief mocked Jesus, but the other thief recognized that he was God. And so he said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus says in Luke 23:43, Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Then in verse 15, Paul says this, According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, 
who are left to the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul is answering their question that he has sent to them. Now, their question wasn't, is the Lord coming? They believed that the Lord was coming. His question, their question was, um, rather, what will happen to the believers, those loved ones that believed in the Lord that have died now? And Paul tells them this answer in 15. And he really is revealing a mystery. We don't know exactly how Paul knows this. Maybe this is something Jesus said to the disciples and they told him. Maybe it was a direct revelation um, from Jesus himself to Paul. But Paul says this is according to the Lord's own word. Those who are alive when Jesus returns will not proceed those believers who have died, those who have fallen asleep. And then he goes on in verse 16 to tell us exactly how it's going to happen. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The Lord Jesus will come down from heaven. Now he's going to come down from heaven and not all the way to the earth, but he's going to come into the sky where we can see him. And it says, first, with a loud command. Other translations use the word shout. Your translation may say shout. And it's a, that is a Greek, uh, comes from a Greek word that has the meaning of a military commander giving a direct order. It has kind of that ring of authority, that sense of urgency. It is the command of our Lord Jesus Christ for the grave to surrender the bodies of the redeemed. Have you ever thought about what Jesus might say, what that loud command is? I've read several different um, commentaries and things about people just speculating on what that would be when Jesus comes back. And I thought about it a lot this week. What would be that command? And I thought, and this is just my opinion, that maybe it would be the word, come. Come. Come, like he said to the disciples, come, follow me. And like he said to the crowd, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And like he said to Lazarus in the tomb, come out. The first word we hear from Jesus when he returns may be the command, come. That's just my opinion. Second, he returns with the voice of the archangel. Now these terms, these sayings here, we don't know exactly what this is going to look like. It's hard to interpret. But it makes sense to me that this would be Michael, the archangel that we read about in Scripture. He's in charge over the other angels, and, uh, uh, and he fights against Satan and the demons. We read that a couple places, and one of them is in Revelation. It's on your verse sheet. Chapter 12, verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now, we talked last week about the spiritual battle that goes on around us that we often forget about. And this is a spiritual battle that began in the Garden of Eden and it's continued through time and and into the future. The battle is against the force of darkness, against Satan and his wicked angels, or sometimes they're called demons. So with the voice of the archangel, 
I think that could be a cheer. I think maybe it's Michael, and he um, gives a shout of victory. How the angels in heaven will celebrate when Jesus comes for his church, for us, the believers. Then thirdly, Jesus comes back with the trumpet call of God. Now, we see trumpets all through the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament alike. And they're used at different times for different reasons, and they can mean different things. One thing, trumpets can signify divine activity, and that makes sense here. Um, A trumpet sound is also used as a call for an army to move forward. Whatever it means here, we can know that Jesus' return will be announced from heaven loudly and dramatically and forcefully and gloriously. As we think about this and as we try to picture it in our minds, I don't think the most amazing thing we can picture will hold a candle to what it's really going to be like when Jesus returns for us. You know, this week, my uh, husband and I, we were watching uh, the coronation of Queen Elizabeth in 1953. It was on a PBS station, and it was pretty amazing. Um, It had the gold, uh, like, what do you call it, coach that she was riding in. It had the dresses we saw that she was wearing. It had the big robe, the crown, and the jewels. And, I mean, it was amazing. It was glorious. And, you know, talk about pomp and circumstance and all the people that were cheering and uh, watching her during this coronation. And I thought as I looked at that, you know, I said to Scott, this is nothing compared to what it's going to be like on the day Jesus returns. We can't even imagine what a wonderful, glorious, beautiful day that will be. Jesus is going to come back with a loud and dramatic entrance. Now, I want to say here that um, as we go on to read, that first will be those that are dead in Christ. Those that have died will rise first. And it says here that um, in verse 17, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We're going to meet the Lord in the air. And that phrase there, meet the Lord, talks about a royal meeting, meeting with royalty, which I think is significant. And then the word there, caught up, or some of your um, translations may be snatched up. That word in Latin is rapturo. And that's where we get our English word rapture. That's where we get the word when we talk about the rapture of the church. It comes from this word, caught up, in the Latin, rapturo. Paul is explaining to the Thessalonians what we refer to today as the rapture of the church. Those that have died, their spirit, which has gone to heaven, will again have a body, their, um, their physical body. But it's not like the physical body that we have here on earth. It's going to be changed into a spiritual body. And those that are alive, as they are caught up and go up, their body also is changed into this spiritual body. And we learn more about that in 1 Corinthians 15, and I have that on your verse sheet. 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 51, and this is sometimes called a companion passage to this passage in 1 Thessalonians. So let me read that. Verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. 
Now, every time I read this, I think about, have you guys seen that outside church nurseries? Anybody? I know. Well, listen, Paul is not talking about changing diapers here. But um, every time I read that, I always see it outside the church nursery. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And I'm going to read a few more verses. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death? Is your sting. So that's what we're going to look like. We're going to be in this uh, new imperishable body. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but um, Scripture tells us, in Ephesians, it tells us that Jesus will present us holy and blameless without stain or blemish or wrinkle. I don't know what that means to you, but this week when I was looking in the mirror and I saw some more of those wrinkles, I started laughing. I thought, who cares? Because my time on earth is so short compared to eternity with Jesus, and I'm not going to have any wrinkles then. So um, as if, you know, we're going to be caring in heaven what we look like. But there's something to look forward to. That imperishable body will have no wrinkles. And then Paul closes this verse 17 and says, And so we will be with the Lord forever. We will be with the Lord forever. Amen. A cheer. You feel like standing up and clapping. We will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. These are some great words of encouragement. We are going to be with the Lord forever. Now, we have a timeline um, that we're going to put on the screen now. It uh, is also on the back of your verse sheet, if you want to look at it close, uh, closely. And this timeline, this graph, kind of um, lays out uh, how we view the end times. Now, let me say that it is difficult to interpret those things in the future that have not happened yet. It's always easier to look in Scripture and to interpret those things that have already happened. But those things that haven't happened yet can be kind of um, difficult. So there are, um, through time, there have always been different people that interpret things differently. This graph represents the belief and the understanding of the Christ Chapel's leadership, and it's also aligned with Christ Chapel's doctrine. So that's what we're going to be looking at and talking about um, today. And I'm not going to even go into those other ways that other people can look at it. Maybe you've looked into this and thought about it a lot, and you have a little bit of d- different interpretation. Um, that's okay. That, um, this is not a salvation issue that was brought up in our small group. This is a different um, opinion on looking at those events in the end times. But this is uh, what the Christ Chapel Doctrine, what the Christ Chapel leadership thinks. So you look there and you see that the timeline begins with the resurrection of Jesus. That's what that cross is. And that begins the church age. And there's really kind of a shading there. And that church age uh, takes place from uh, the time of the resurrection of Jesus until Jesus comes back and and, um, takes up the believers. And we call that the rapture of the church. We're the saints. We're the believers that are going to be caught up um, with Jesus at that time. And that's when the church age uh, will end and the tribulation will begin.
The rapture of the church, that is what we have been talking about in chapter 4. And we don't know how long the church age will last. It's sometimes called the age of grace. Um, It's already been 2,000 years. We know Jesus could come tomorrow. Or he could come after another 2,000 years. We don't know when Jesus is coming back for us. After the rapture, the seven years of tribulation begins. You see that on there. And at the end of the seven years... Jesus will come back to earth with the saints, with us, because remember, we're going to be with him. And that's the time of the Battle of Armageddon. That's the time of uh, the end of things as we know it. And Christ returns with the saints. And this begins the literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And once again, we'll be with him. Have you ever, I don't know about you, but as I've studied these things before, I've said, now, where are we going to be? Where are we going to be? Are we going to be, you know, okay, we got the answer here today, ladies. Wherever Jesus is, that's where we're going to be. If Jesus is in heaven, we're going to be in heaven. If Jesus is coming back for the uh, battle of Armageddon, we're coming back with him. And if he's reigning on the earth, we will be there with Jesus reigning. Wherever Jesus is, that is where we will be. The Bible talks about the second coming of Jesus, that time when he comes back to the earth as the day of the Lord. And that's what we're going to look at next in chapter 5 in Thessalonians. So let's read chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety... Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. The day of the Lord begins with the tribulation. Um, After the rapture comes the day of the Lord. Um, Sometimes it's also referred to as that uh, specific time when Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation. Sometimes that's called the day of the Lord um, as well. It's, It's a time period. It's not just one specific event. It's a time period starting at the, um, when rapture, at the beginning of the tribulation, um, until the end of that. And uh, Dr. Walvert, I'd like to read what he says about it. He is a past president of Dallas Theological Seminary, and he says this about the day of the Lord. It is a period of time in which God will deal with wicked men directly and dramatically in fearful judgment. God will punish human sin. He will deal in wrath with a Christ-rejecting world. It will be a day of wrath. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean a 24-hour period, but it's a period of time, kind of like we talk about the day of our youth. It's the day of the Lord, this day of judgment. And I gave you some verses to look up in the Old Testament. They talk about the day of the Lord in several places there, and it's always a picture of um, being dark and dreadful. And on your verse sheet, I have one more uh, verse. It's Isaiah 13, 9. And it says, see, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The day of the Lord is dark and dreadful. But Paul goes on to tell the Thessalonians in verses 4 and 5, you will not be there. Let's look at verse 4. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night 
nor to the darkness. And in verse 9 he says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You who believe in Jesus will not be there. You are sons of the light. You believe in the light, Jesus. You will be with him. You're going to be caught up with him. Chapter 4 is the blessing of the rapture of believers. You might even want to mark that at the side of your Bible, those verses that we just read in chapter 4. That is talking about the rapture of the believers. It's the blessing of the rapture of the believers. Chapter 5, on the other hand, is the judgment of unbelievers. The day of the Lord has to do with the judgment time, the judgment of the unbelievers. You've probably heard it said that the Holy Spirit who dwells within us when we're taken up during the rapture, the Holy Spirit's going up too. The Holy Spirit will not be in the world then. And the Holy Spirit is what is restraining evil now. Can you imagine what it will be like with nothing restraining evil? Nothing holding it back. What a dark and dreadful time that will be. Who can endure it, as it says in Joel? But we will not be a part of that. We will not be a part of that because we will be with the Lord. And then Paul tells us that we cannot know the day and the time. And he gets that from Jesus himself. Mark 13 on your verse sheet, 32. This is Jesus talking and he says... No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. I've often thought, you know, what a um, futile thing to try to figure out when Jesus is coming back. No one knows that, only God himself. And he tells us that it will come like um, a thief in the night. Now, has anybody ever had a burglar call you up and say, hey, I'm coming over on Thursday night. You know, they don't make an appointment with you. They don't call up and say, this is when I'm coming. You don't know when a burglar's breaking in. That's what the day of the Lord is going to be like, like a thief in the night. When we least expect it. When people are standing around saying, hey, things are pretty good. You know, it's peaceful. It's safe. That's when destruction will come. And then he also gives the analogy of the um, pregnant woman, labor pains coming on a pregnant woman. Now, there's an analogy that still works well 2,000 years later. For all of you that have been pregnant and gone into labor, you know what that feels like. You know, it is um, sudden. It happens suddenly. And even though you're expecting this baby, it still comes unexpectedly. And... It comes with pain, like labor pain on a pregnant woman. That is what the day of the Lord will be like. Now, I can still remember when I went into labor for the first time with my, um, with my firstborn. Um, it was about 10 o'clock at night. I had been to the doctor that day, and he said it would be at least another week. My husband was in New Orleans because his job had transferred him there, and I was going to move there as soon as I had the baby, and he was coming home on the weekend. Now, I don't know why we thought we would have the baby on the weekend, but um, that was his plan. He was coming home on weekends and working during the week. So I go into labor about 10 o'clock, and, you know, you're sitting there thinking, is this it? This, this must be it. But I waited until midnight to make sure, and then I called Scott. He was in a dead sleep. Um, I know that because at 2.30 he called me back and said, Hey, was I just dreaming about you being in labor? 
I said, no, that was me calling you. Please go to the airport and get on a plane. And he says, well, I've just called, and the first plane is 6 o'clock, so wait on me. Okay, there's a guy. There's a guy that knows nothing about labor. Okay, I'll, I'll wait on you. That's how the day of the Lord's going to be. You know, the doctor didn't know when it was coming. Scott was thinking I could wait. But when labor pains came on a pregnant one, there is no turning back. There's no stopping it. It's sudden. It's unexpected. There's usually pain. And there's no escaping it. You're going on to the end. So it is with the day of the Lord. Now, let me just tell you, because it was my firstborn, Scott was able to get back to Fort Worth before I had um, Rachel, because I didn't have her until 1 o'clock that next afternoon. So he, he made it back in time and got to be with me. That was, that was wonderful. But I think about that. I think, you know, what, what were we exactly thinking? Um, that's how it is with the day of the Lord. It's going to be sudden and unexpected, and pain will be involved. It'll be dreadful. As believers, we will already be with Jesus. It seems to me that Paul makes that pretty clear throughout this letter. We first read it in chapter 1, verse 10. Do you remember when we read it back then? And it says that the Thessalonians were waiting for Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And he says it again in verse 9, that we're not appointed to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through the Lord Jesus. Then let's go on and to um, look at how we should live now that we know this. How do we live until Jesus returns? And Paul starts with telling us that in verse 6. So then let us not be like others who are asleep. Now, asleep here really means um, kind of indifference or unconcern, unaware. So it's different than what we were seeing before. But let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So how are we to live? I think we are to live expectantly. We are alert, looking forward to the thrill of Jesus' return. What a thrill that will be. When Jesus comes back. Have you ever thought about that? Does it make a difference in how you live your life? Being focused on Christ's return. I think that when we're focused on that, we have a deep joy within us. That's kind of undergirds everything that we do. So that when we have a hard day at work, it doesn't seem that bad. Because underneath is that deep joy of knowing we're going to be with the Lord. When there's hard things in our life, when that stuff goes on that really gets us down, we still have that deep joy of knowing that Christ is coming back. I also think that when I focus on the Lord, I don't hold on as tight to the things of the world. I'm focused on Jesus' return. You know, it talks here about getting drunk, and I don't really get intoxicated by um, alcoholic beverages, but sometimes I think I can become intoxicated with the glamour and the pleasures of this world. When I am focused on Jesus coming back, I don't hold on as tight to those things. And then we see him mentioning... um, that we should have live life self-controlled, living each day, serving God with faith and love and hope. Do you recognize that? Do you remember 
Paul has already talked about the faith and love and hope of the Thessalonians in chapter 1, verse 3. Then he was commending the Thessalonians for their work produced by faith, their labor prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by hope. And he once again mentions this triad, these spiritual graces, and he reminds them, continue serving God, serving God with your faith and your hope and your love. And then he goes on to even say, put on faith and love and hope as a breastplate and a helmet. Now, a breastplate protects our heart. Faith protects us against temptation. Faith is trusting in God's promises. Faith is believing God. It's believing God's word. And that is what protects us, his word. Love, that agape love of God, protects our heart. It is the great motivator because God loved me first. I love others. I'm motivated to love. Love guards my heart. Last week in the small group meeting, one of the small group leaders told this story about an African gal that wanted to go to Australia to study. And so she had saved the $3,500 for a visa. So she applied for her visa and sent the money in, but she was denied her visa. But she didn't receive back the $3,500. So when she was relating to this story to someone in the United States, um, a, the, a friend, the friend said, oh my, isn't there some way that you can get that money back? Do you not have some recourse, some legal action that you can take to get that money back? And she said, oh no, I can work some more and make some more money, but I must guard my heart. I must guard my heart. She did not want resentment or revenge or anger or frustration. She didn't want that to enter her heart. She was guarding her heart and guarding it with love. That was more important than the justice. Love guards our heart. And hope, hope, that sure certainty of Jesus coming, Put on hope as a helmet. And what does a helmet do? It protects our brain. It protects our head. And hope protects our thinking. It deals with our doubt and it enables us to live life in the midst of pain and hardship. Live each day serving God with faith and love and hope. Verse 10 goes on to say, He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Whether we have died as believers or whether we're still alive when Jesus comes back, we are going to be with him. So until then, encourage one another and build each other up. He's been talking about encouragement this whole time, and we've talked a lot about encouragement these last four weeks. I've gotten an encouragement letter from someone. I hope that's a result of this. I hope, ladies, that you've received encouragement, and I hope you have been going out and remembering this and encouraging others. Encourage others with your time. You know, call someone, write someone, walk alongside someone that's having a hard time. Encourage one another with words, with these words, that Jesus loves you and he's coming back for you. Maybe we need to encourage someone financially. Is there some way that you feel God's calling you to bear someone's burden? Maybe you need to encourage them in that way. Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. 
Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. The disciple John wrote the book Revelation, and it is some God-given visions of the end times. And as John finished writing down his revelation of the end times, he wrote this, chapter 22, verse 20, and he's talking about Jesus here. And he says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. And John says, Come, Lord Jesus. And I too say, Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we do say, come. What a glorious day that shall be. Father, I just pray that until that day Jesus returns, that you will just work us in us mightily, that we might encourage one another, that we might stay alert, that we might be focused on you, Lord. I pray, Father, that we would look forward to the return, that we would look forward to being with Jesus forever. And, Father, that that might change the way we live our life, that we would live our life alert and expectantly and joyfully encouraging one another. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for all the women in this room and for their love for each other. And we love you back, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.